Hello, welcome to another episode of the Capital Employed Podcast. Joining me in conversation for this episode was Jonah Lupton. In this episode, Jonah provides an overview of his investment style. He also talks about two companies in his portfolio that are growing revenues at a rapid pace and could potentially be 5x, possibly even 10x multi-baggers. Exciting stuff. I really enjoyed listening to him and I think you will too. Before we jump into this episode, do make sure to add your email to the Capital Employed email list. We will be publishing some exclusive interviews that will only be available to those on the list. To receive these bonus episodes, please visit capitalemployed.fm forward slash exclusive and add your email to the list. Okay, please enjoy my conversation with Jonah. Hi Jonah, thanks for coming onto the podcast. Thanks for having me. I've been onto your website and you're involved with so many projects. Um, I didn't know where to start, so could you provide an overview of what you do? Yeah, so right now I'm mostly focused on my Substack newsletter, which is my weekly deep dive analysis on different companies. I also run a stock twits room where I post a lot of my my buys and sells, my daily commentary, uh, any stocks that I'm you know particularly interested in and starting to do some due diligence on. You know, basically trying to help uh, retail investors do a better job at managing their portfolio. And then I also created a company called Fintrix. It's really a product that's based on fundamental analysis. So myself and my developer built this complicated, you know, valuation model to try to help retail investors uh, determine fair market valuation for their companies and where these stocks should be trading in 12 months based on the fundamentals. So those three things are, are taking up most of my time right now trying to think what else I'm doing. I think that's pretty much it. It's really those three things. Oh, and then I do a lot of interviews with CEOs. So, you know, because my investment strategy is primarily small cap, mid cap growth, you know, these are the types of companies that investors are not overly familiar with, and they don't get a chance to, you know, hear from these CEOs on CNBC or Bloomberg. So I'm using this as an opportunity to interview these CEOs so that they can talk to retail investors about what they're doing, you know, how they're building their companies and, and whatnot. So when you turn on CNBC, you see a lot of interviews with the you know, big time Fortune 500 CEOs of companies like McDonald's and Bank of America and Boeing. You, know, you don't see a lot of interviews of, with CEOs of companies under 5 billion market cap. So that's where I've kind of plugged myself in. Yeah, I'm subscribed to your um, YouTube channel and the, the content is excellent. Yeah, I really Thanks. enjoy it. For your investment style, what, what type of businesses do you like to invest in? What characteristics are you looking for? So I'm definitely a growth investor. Uh, I just, you know, I'm, I'm only 40 years old, so I'm still on the younger side. I have, you know, a couple decades left till retirement. So I just believe the, you know, the best way for me to at least outperform the indexes and maximize my returns over the next 10 or 20 years is to invest in the most disruptive companies that I can find. You know, with that disruption typically comes growth, but not all growth is the same. I am cognizant that, you know, there, there's different, different layers of growth or different types of growth stocks. You have the more mature growth companies out there like the Amazons and the Facebooks and the Microsofts, you know, they're still growing at 15, 20, 25% a year, but they're very, very mature. They have great margins, strong cash flows, 
uh, incredible balance sheets, but those companies have already seen their hyper growth. Uh, and then you have like the next tier down, which is, you know, your hundred to your $250 billion companies, you know, that's your squares, you know, NVIDIA, Adobe, Autodesk, uh, Salesforce, those types of companies, you know, once again, you know, their hyper growth days are, are behind them. They're more mature. Now they're growing at probably 30, 40%. I, I am looking for those hyper growth companies. I'm looking for the stocks that are growing at uh, at least 50% a year. And that's for the next two to three years. But most of my companies should grow at at least 80 to 100% for the next two or three years. So right now in my portfolio, I have 20 stocks ranging anywhere from 40% annual growth to 500% annual growth. Now, the companies that are growing at 500%, that's, that's not sustainable, obviously. You know, that's a company like Desktop Metal that is really just getting into their, into their revenues now. They're, they're launching these, these massive 3D printers and they're, they're shipping their, uh, their, their largest units this year, which is why that revenue is, is, uh, is spiking, you know, that hockey stick growth. But across my 20 stocks, the average company in my portfolio should grow revenues at about 145 to 155% this year. So I'm looking for stocks with market caps under 10 billion with growth rates above 50% that I believe have a very good chance at 5Xing over the next five years. So, you know, we call that a five bagger. So a five bagger over the next five years would equate to a 38% compounded annual growth rate. So I'm trying to build a portfolio of 15 to 25 stocks that I believe each one of them could be a five bagger over the next five years. Obviously, some of them will not hit that mark. And then some of them will. I think most of them will. And then several of my portfolio will probably end up being 10 baggers or maybe even 15 baggers over the next five years. So my goal is to run a to run a, port, a diversified portfolio of growth stocks that, that I think I can achieve you know, at least a 25 to 30% annual return over the next five years. How do you look at like, the valuation? It is very difficult to value some of these growth stocks. One way is you can, you know, try to find a, a comparable stock or company in their sector uh, and try to compare multiples that way. Uh, another way to do it is you can build financial or forecasting models, you know, we call them DCF models, discounted cash flow. And you can build these models that go out three, four, five years, you know, try to predict what the revenues might be, try to predict what the, you know, the gross margins might be, the EBITDA margins, the net income margins, uh, you know, apply a, you know, risk-free discount. And then that'll kind of give you an idea of what the, you know, the current, you know, fair market valuation for that stock might be, meaning, you know, what should you be willing to pay for that company now, assuming that it hits those numbers, what it can be worth in three, four, five years. So I do have a five-year model for each of my my core holdings. There's probably a couple stocks in my portfolio that I haven't done a, a full five-year model on yet, partly because a lot of these smaller, younger, high-growth companies that are just coming public now or in the past year or so, uh, and they're just starting to hit that big ramp up in revenues, it's really hard to know where revenues might go in three, four, five years. I mean, there's a lot of things that could go right, could go wrong, and it's very hard to try to predict the next three, four, five years of revenues until you see these companies operate for 
you know, two quarters, three quarters, four quarters to see if they're actually able to hit their, you know, their expected numbers. So, but at least for my core holdings, you know, my top 10 holdings, I do have a five year, you know, forecasting or financial model for each of those stocks, you know, with revenues and margins. Uh, and that's why I feel so comfortable continuing to add to these positions right now, because I believe I have a good idea of where these stocks could be trading in three, four or five years if the stories unfold the way that I think they are. But, you know, in the old days, when I first got into investing 20 years ago, you didn't have a lot of companies growing this fast. You know, software companies didn't really exist. There was no 3D printing. There was no electric vehicles. I mean, a lot of industries that are very strong right now didn't even exist 20 years ago. And this was just after the dot-com bubble, where a lot of investor has, investors had gotten burned on these supposed high growth companies, these internet stocks. So back 20 years ago, when I got in, you know, which was 2002, most investors were only investing in companies that had proven revenues and earnings, and you were valuing these companies on price to earnings multiples. But nowadays, you know, when there's a company that's supposed to grow at 150, 200% for the next four or five years, they're not going to be profitable yet. You know, they, they need that runway in order to ramp up their revenues. Uh, launch new products, take market share, build the team, etc. You know, these companies are going to lose money for the next two or three years as they, you know, scale up the business. And not every investor is is willing to take that ride. I am for a large portion of my portfolio. So I kind of, you know, I kind of break up my portfolio into three pieces. I have like the, you know, the real high growth, high risk stocks, you know, slightly slower growth, more mature companies that are already profitable. And then, you know, somewhere in the middle, you know, companies that are growing at, you know, 100% and maybe they're only one or two years away from, you know, finally being break, e- break even or profitable. But, you know, you see a lot of investors nowadays using price to sales multiples to value these, these younger, higher growth companies that are, that don't have any earnings yet. It's tricky. You know, I mean, every investor needs to figure out what works for them. Can you talk us through two stocks in your portfolio that you're really excited about, you think have good long-term potential, and what was the thesis for investing? One of the stocks I definitely would have talked more about in detail is Upstart, because it was my biggest holding up until a couple of weeks ago. Actually, it still is my biggest holding right now, but uh, this is an AI-powered kind of software lending company, so they don't take any credit risk themselves. Essentially, what they did was built a a better underwriting model compared to the traditional FICO scores. So most banks, 99% of banks out there are using FICO scores to determine an applicant's uh, or a potential borrower's credit worthiness. Upstart decided eight years ago that that was ridiculous, that there's so much more information and data out there that should be used to determine someone's credit worthiness. Uh, that they built this very complex model based on 1,600 data points per applicant. And over the last eight years, they've, you know, essentially gathered 16 billion data points. Hundreds of thousands of loans have now been processed through Upstart software. And every time a loan is issued or denied or payments are made or payments are missed, all of that is helping this model become smarter and smarter and smarter. I mean, that's the power behind AI and machine learning. I've understood this company pretty well since they, be- they came public in December. I did a Substack write-up on the company when the stock was trading in the high 30s. 
it was my second largest position coming into 2020, uh, yeah, 2021. And the stock went from 40 to 100 within a couple months and then sold off all the way back down to 55. And then they reported great Q1 numbers and raised guidance for the year. So the stock rallied from 50, 55 all the way up to 165. I, mean, I think it was like in three or four days, the stock literally went up 3x. And then it pulled all the way back down to around 100. And then they reported phenomenal Q2 numbers. And the stock actually reacted negatively. A couple of weeks ago, the stock got down to 82. I doubled down on it in my portfolio, which usually means that I'm selling some of my lower conviction positions. So, you know, I'll go trim off two or three of my smallest positions in the portfolio and add to, you know, one of my higher conviction names, in this case, Upstart. And then over the last week and a half, Upstart literally went up 100%. It went from 81 or 82 all the way up into the 160s yesterday where I started trimming the position back. So, I mean, it's been an absolute home run for me this year. And this is just the very beginning for a company like this, because if you think about the the size of the credit markets, you know, they've only been doing personal loans up until now. They, they're now just getting into auto loans. They actually acquired a company called Prodigy, uh, which builds software for auto dealers. So that will help them you know, uh, accelerate this process to get into auto loans because it'll enable them to build relationships with auto dealers and then have their their AI software uh, kind of plugged into the lending portion of the, the checkout process for customers at auto dealers. The CEO of Upstart calls this Prodigy software the Shopify for the for auto dealers. So that's a good way to think about it. A very seamless process for customers when they walk into an auto dealership you know, they can now get an iPad and basically go through the entire customization and checkout process. I love everything that Upstart's doing. Phenomenally smart team. They're hiring tons and tons of uh, software engineers and computer scientists, PhDs, AI and, and ML experts. So it's a top three position for me right now, even after trimming uh, 25% of my position over the last two days. Not because I've lost any faith in the company, just because the position size got way too big for my portfolio. So Upstart is still one of my favorites. Um, I actually wasn't going to talk about it in that much detail because it's up 100% over the last week. And you know what was a great entry price a week and a half ago in the 80s, uh, I wouldn't go running into the stock right now in the 140s. Although, you know, like I said, yesterday the stock ripped up to about 163, 164. And then pulled back uh, throughout the day into the low 140s as clearly there was some profit taking going on. So definitely would not have been a buyer of the stock in the 160s. But after that 20% or so pullback, um, I think it looks pretty interesting now back in the 140s. I think this is uh, probably a 200 to $240 stock uh, in the next 6 to 12 months. So that's one. So another one that I still love that I actually did a Twitter thread about today is Celsius. So this is an energy drink company that people might be familiar with because they've been getting a lot of exposure uh, across social media recently, but also because they've done a great job of growing their store footprint. Energy drinks is a pretty competitive space. I don't think it's quite as competitive as people think it is. There are a lot of brands out there. But there's a limited number of brands that actually get shelf space, which is really all that matters. You know, at the end of the day, if you're not on the shelf or you're not in the cooler, 
Um, you really don't matter. Right now, the, the two big energy drink companies out there are Red Bull and Monster. They probably account for half of the industry. The, the total addressable market right now for energy drinks is 60 billion and growing at nine or 10% a year. So this will be a, let's call it a hundred billion dollar market in five to six years. Right now, Celsius has about 1.2% market share of the U.S. market, but I, I, I see that growing to probably three or four, maybe even 5% over the next five to six years. So what they've done over the last year is just incredible job of, of execution. They were primarily a, they call themselves like a, a functional fitness beverage because it's a much healthier version of an energy drink that actually has vitamins and other nutrients in there electrolytes and whatnot uh, versus your traditional energy drink like Monster Red Bull, which is basically just a bunch of chemicals and artificial flavors. So uh, since Celsius started, they really wanted to be known as the the healthier energy drink. And because of that, when they first launched, you know, many years ago, their focus was on the fitness channel, you know, meaning uh, gyms and fitness studios and whatnot. And that's kind of what they were still doing up until the pandemic started. Uh, they had some retail Distribution, meaning you know, grocery stores, you know, big retail stores, gas stations, and whatnot. But they were, you know, gym and fitness was still their their primary channel. And then the pandemic started. A lot of retail obviously got shut down. They really put more focus into e-commerce. Uh, Amazon became a really strong channel for them. They're actually the number two energy drink on Amazon, which is pretty incredible. They're actually ahead of Red Bull on Amazon. The only company, the only energy drink company on Amazon that's ahead of them is Monster. And they are quickly catching catching Monster. They're probably, I mean, they're probably still a year or so behind, but uh, I, I could see them surpassing Monster at some point. But back to distribution. So I don't know the exact store count when the pandemic started. My guess is it was probably in the 30, 40,000 range, but they ended 2020 at 82,000 stores. They ended Q1 2021 at 92,000 stores. So that's phenomenal growth. I mean, 92,000 stores right now carry Celsius, and that's including Walmart, Target, Costco, Kroger. I mean, most of your big grocery stores, CVS, Walgreens, Speedway, you know, a lot of your big convenience stores and gas stations. And that's actually the largest channel for grab and go. So convenience stores and gas stations is where people, what I call grab and go, they're looking to pop in, you know, fill up their gas tank, run in, grab an energy drink, and they want that drink cold. You know, they don't want to be grabbing a warm energy drink off the shelf. So what Celsius is in the process of doing is putting these branded coolers, you know, that are probably, I don't know, I'd say two and a half to three feet wide, probably six or seven feet high, you know, three or four shelves in there. And putting those coolers into, you know, some of the, what they call, you know, the highest sales velocity locations uh, where people can, you know, grab and go a cold Celsius, you know, one or two cans at a time. But I would say the biggest thing that they've done, you know, besides 92,000 stores, besides these branded coolers, they, they're in the process of transitioning from DTR to DSD. And what that means is, so DTR is direct to retailer which means, you know, let's say you're a grocery store in Wisconsin and you're running out of Celsius, you place an order for Celsius, Celsius ships the, the pallets or the order to the distribution center or the warehouse for the retailer. 
and then it gets shipped to the store, and then the employees have to stock the shelves. You know, late last year, because I've been such a big fan of Celsius, people were tweeting me pictures of their local stores completely sold out of Celsius. They would go in there at like two o'clock in the afternoon and the shelves would be empty. And that's because the employees were not stocking those shelves fast enough. Now they're transitioning over to DSD, which is direct store delivery. Uh, and that means that they work with these regional partners, their DSD partners that deliver the, the stock themselves, deliver this, the, the product themselves to the stores. And they're responsible for keeping those shelves stocked all the time. And that is a, a huge transition for the company. I mean, that's how the big boys do it. You know, that's how Coke does it, Pepsi does it, Monster, Red Bull. They all work with DSD partners. And, you know, because recently Bang, which is another big energy drink, went and did a uh, distribution deal with Pepsi, th they ended up leaving all of their DSD partners. And those DSD partners then came to Celsius uh, and have now partnered with Celsius. So Celsius is now working with a lot of the DSD partners that helped Bang grow to where they are today. So the story is, it's really interesting if you, if you dive in and actually try to figure out the business model and why they're growing and what the growth strategy is, you know, it adds up to something that's pretty exciting and something that I posted on Twitter today, which hopefully a few people listening have already read. So Nielsen data, that's, that's the scan data that CPG companies use to determine year-over-year -year, you know, sales velocity. Q1 Nielsen data for Celsius was tracking around 100%. When Celsius reported Q1 numbers, they reported 101% year-over-year growth in U.S. operations and then 25% in international. But now in Q2, those numbers are way up. So in April, the Nielsen scan data was tracking at 200%. I am expecting a monster Q2 from Celsius because even if that scan data goes from 200% year over year in April to 180 in May and 160 in June, you're still looking at 180% year over year scan data uh, for US operations. And because Celsius, because US operations was 78% of total revenues in Q1, these bigger numbers would easily get that over 80%, you know, as the U.S. international mix. If international grows at, let's say, 40% year over year, so you have 180% for U.S. as 80% of operations, and then 40% for international, 20% of operations. I mean, you could be looking at a 140 to 150% year over year number for Celsius. And right now, the estimates are 76% year-over-year -year growth to 53 million. So I think Celsius is setting themselves up for a monster Q2 number. So we'll see. You know, there's still, um, I mean, what are we, end of May right now? So I'll probably see that Nielsen data in the next few days. Celsius doesn't report Q2 numbers until August, but uh, I'm adding to my position right now because I see Q2 setting up as a complete monster quarter for the company, assuming they can get through this aluminum can shortage. So there actually is an aluminum can shortage on the planet, which is crazy because you, I just never thought that that would happen given, you know, how much recycling is, is now done by people and towns. But it's true. I mean, there is a legit aluminum can shortage. I think it's because a lot of people um, have stopped eating and drinking in restaurants and now they are, you know, they're consuming more cans. 
you know, think about all the people that used to go into bars and drink at bars, you know, out of glass bottles or, you know, actual glasses, you know, because of draft beer. And now all of those people are sitting at home drinking cans. I think that's kind of what's led to this, this can shortage. Plus the, the global supply chain and logistics is just totally messed up everywhere. Um, I've seen that across multiple companies where, you know, their shipping delays and the ports are backed up and, but we'll see. Assuming Celsius can get through the can shortage, I think they're in a great position for a, a really big um, Q2 number. Yeah, I didn't realize there was that shortage going on. Yeah, thanks, Jonah, for sharing those two companies. They're both very exciting. Where can our listeners go to find out more about you? Uh, I'm very active on Twitter. Uh, that's probably the best place to find me. So my Twitter handle is just my first name and last name put together, Jonah Lupton. Uh, and then if you go to Twitter in my bio, I have links to my Substack and my stock twits room. So if you want to get my weekly write-ups or, you know, you want to join my, my daily trading room, uh, the links are right there for you. Okay. That's great. Yeah. Thanks so much, Jonah, for coming onto the show. It's been great listening to you. Maybe we can, um, get you back onto the show a bit into the future of some, um, more stocks that you found. Absolutely. Love to come back anytime. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it.